Good morning. Woke up this morning and I was thanking God for heat. Seriously, it's cold last night, but here we are this morning, nice and warm in here as well. And uh, we want to, this morning, as we get into God's Word, we want to be reminded that Jesus told us, apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from God, we can do nothing. It's fair to say that our state, to use a fancy term, pre-regenerative state, that is, our lives before God breathes life into us, we're dead. We're dead spiritually. Spiritually. Not emotionally or mentally or psychologically or physically, but we are dead spiritually, which means we're, we're dead to spiritual things, which is why Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 3, you must be born again. We, we use that term, and it's interesting because growing up, I thought that was a term only used by a bunch of hippies in the 70s, but it actually is biblical. And being born again means that God has breathed life into you. You have now become regenerated. You have become a spiritual being with a spiritual relationship with God. And that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be born again. So apart from him, that is apart from God, we can do nothing. But we also know that he tells us in the scriptures with God... All things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord God, we we look to you this morning. We desire that you would breathe life into us. We need your spirit to regenerate us, to, to make us new, to make us born again. Born again of the spirit. Lord, this comes through an act of faith on our part, by putting our faith and our trust in you as our Lord and Savior, we know that we're transformed, we're changed, not just for now, but for all eternity. And I pray this for every person here today who has made that decision to be reminded that they have been given new life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. But for those who are seeking, for those that are seeking to know you more and don't really understand why their life feels like it's dead, why their life feels like it's not amounting to the things that they desire it to spiritually, Lord God, I pray that you would show them that it's a simple act of faith on our part as we cry out to you and trust in you with our lives and give our hearts to you and surrender that we might be born again of the Spirit and worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, I pray that this realization would come to all of us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can get your Bibles out. Figured I might need this today. Haven't memorized this chapter. (laughs) This morning we see that the Lord is about to confirm his covenant with Abram 13 years after Ishmael was born. He is, that is Abram, is 99 years old. And this confirmation of the covenant that's been reiterated and specifically made, as we saw last week, made to Abram and, and, and Sarai, uh, actually it was two weeks ago that we, we looked at the covenant. Last week we looked at how Abram and Sarai felt they needed to get involved to bring about God's promise. And we've learned in that study and We've learned in many studies in God's word that you don't need to get involved to bring about the promises of God. You simply need to believe by faith in the promises of God. That's a very different thing. 
And I don't know that it was all bad news with Ishmael being born, but it certainly wasn't the fulfillment of God's promise. So you might think that at this point, uh, Abram and Sarai are pretty happy. They have the son that they believe God promised, and God did promise, but this isn't the son he promised. And they're, they're waiting on all of God's blessings through his descendants. And, and, you know, at this point, I'm sure Abram is thinking, well, you know, God has been good. He fulfilled his promise. He said these things would happen. So for 13 years, they're under the misconception that, in fact, God has done what God said he would do, or had at least begun to do what he said he would do. And sometimes I think we think that God has worked when, in fact, God is working. I, I think, I've heard it said this way, the, the enemy of best is good, or good enough. Many of us are willing spiritually to settle. We're willing to settle for good. When God has so much better than good, he has great. And he desires to do a work in our hearts and in our lives, and I think we really have to remind ourselves that We may have seen some good things in our lives. We may have even brought about those good things by being obedient to God or getting involved. But God has things that are so much better. And and those things cannot happen in our lives unless God breathes life into our lives. You'll remember when Adam was created, we learned there that God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. He became alive because of the breath of God. That is sometimes referred to in the scriptures as the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God. The spirit of God, God's life, spiritual life. And it's what Jesus came to provide to each and every person that will put their faith in his death and resurrection. It is being born again, spiritual life. So what the Lord does now is remind Abram of the promise that had yet to be fulfilled. And I imagine this was so much a a, a surprise for them because they probably thought, well, God has already done what he said he would do. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. We've seen in previous studies that the promise, the covenant of God to Abram and now Abraham is that of two things. It's the land of Canaan, but it's also the descendants to inherit the land of Canaan. Did you notice that word everlasting covenant? Many people today, many Christians are questioning whether the covenant to Abram is still in effect. Uh, They believe that somehow the Jews, because of their disobedience and their unbelief as a nation, 
have somehow forfeited the promise, but the problem is that promise was an unconditional promise, an everlasting covenant. And so regardless of how you feel about that, God said he made an everlasting covenant with the Jewish people and that two things would be true forever. One, that they would have many descendants and two, that they would inhabit the land of Canaan. Both of those things are true and really always have been, but even more so since 1948 and the establishing of Israel as a nation. Now, this doesn't justify any actions on the part of the nation of Israel. This doesn't promote Zionism as a philosophy, but it does make it clear that the Jews are given the land by God. That much cannot be argued, and more importantly, that the land is theirs forever. So this chanting of from the, the river to the sea and, you know, all of this idea of the uh, denying of the state of Israel and, and, and suggesting that somehow the land doesn't belong to them is in conflict with the word of God. That's not to say we don't pray for those who would dispute that or the Palestinian people as a whole. I would love to see peace in the Middle East and someday the Prince of Peace will come and establish that peace for all people, Muslims, Jews, Christians, but that day is not today, and so we see wars. And if you're like me, you, you see what's going on uh, in our world, and you're distressed because you think, well, you know, here we are fighting more and more wars, and not to get political, but I, I'm not a big fan of war. I like to elect politicians who don't want to start wars or end wars because I don't like to see war. War is a terrible thing. It grieves me that our tax dollars are spent on missiles and bombs. I understand there may be a time when we need to fight wars. I get that. I understand that. But so many of these conflicts, I think we get involved in as a nation and as a culture and just make things worse. And I'm, and I'm sad and I'm tired of seeing people in this world suffer. And yet there's very little we can do about it as individuals. There's much that God will do about it in the end. Amen? But the covenant is everlasting. So let's establish that up front. The Lord appeared to Abram, and he changed his name. Now, there are times in the scriptures when individuals are given new names. I think of Jacob being given the name Israel. I think of others who were given new names. But, but wait a minute, Peter, for example. He was later called Cephas, or the rock. You know, Actually, he was originally called Simon, and then his name was changed to Peter or Petrus, or, or Cephas, if you will. So, when God changes a name, it's symbolic of a change internally, spiritually. And here he introduces himself to Abram, soon to be Abraham, as God Almighty, El Shaddai, a term that's used 48 times. The one who can do all things. El Shaddai, the Almighty, the one who can do anything. As we opened with that scripture all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And he starts by telling them that, essentially, with me, all things are possible. All things. And he calls Abram to walk before him by faith and according to his word. Walk before me and be blameless. That would mean obedient. Not perfect. Blameless means obedient. And so he has come to confirm the covenant that he had made with Abram like over 14 years ago. He had promised to greatly increase Abram's descendants. At this point, he has one, and his name is Ishmael. But now he changes Abram's name to testify to the faithfulness of his promise. 
He promised that Abram would be the father of many nations. At this point, it doesn't look like he's more than just the father of one son. Now, Abram, or Abram, means exalted father, a great father, which was already true concerning his life. He was a father. Yes, it's true. But Abraham means the father of many nations, which would be fulfilled but in the future. This hasn't happened yet. It will happen. It's a promise. It's a promise about future fulfillments of the promises made in the past. He would be very fruitful, though he had currently just that one son. He would father multiple nations through his many descendants, and he would be the ancestor of kings as well as nations. All of this would be in the future, and some of it would begin in his life before he died, but most of it would happen long after he passed into glory, or at least into that place of waiting called Abraham's bosom, waiting for God to bring glory to those in that place. Now, he confirmed his everlasting covenant with Abram and his descendants. Again, he would be the God of Abraham and of his descendants forever. Forever. And he would give the entire land of Canaan to his descendants forever. Now, there are many descendants of Abraham, Ishmael being one of them. And so all of the descendants of the Ishmael, called the Ishmaelites, uh, who were were Bedouin people that really kind of mixed in with the Midianites and other peoples. Now, I'll remind you that Moses' wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite. And then the Ishmaelites show up throughout Israel's history, and they're not necessarily enemies, by the way. They're, they're, they're many times where they're, they're not enemies at all, but allies. And I think people have given the Ishmaelites a bad name. They, they sort of grossly uh, oversimplify the Arab-Israeli conflict and say that it's the fault of Abram and Sarai for having Ishmael, and that's why the Arabs exist. Now, the Arabs are descended from many different people groups, and Ishmaelites are just one group of people who mixed in with the Arabs, but please do not oversimplify that conflict, as if to say that the Arab-Israeli conflict is the result of Abram and Sarai having Ishmael. Uh, That would be an oversimplification of a very complicated problem that has its roots in European colonialism and other issues which we're not going to get in today. But understand, people like to say that. It's not true, as we'll see in the Genesis account. But there were many other groups of Bedouin peoples, referred to as Arabs, uh, They uh, today. Uh, they are not the Canaanites, necessarily. Even the Philistines, uh, from where we get the term Palestine, it, it, that's a word, that's a translation, really, of Philistine, Palestine. Uh, the area was called that during the Roman era, uh, is from the word Philistines. And the Philistines were not Canaanites either. So the Canaanites are not Philistines. The Arabs are not Canaanites. Who were the Canaanites? Well, we'll see as we go through the history within Genesis. They were specific groups of people uh, identified by God who had sinned greatly and God judged through Israel. Later, when Israel turned their back on God, God raised up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans to judge Israel. So it's not as if God takes sides. When people are in obedience to him, he blesses them. Even his own people, when they are disobedient, they will be chastised and judgment comes. And that's true for us as well as a nation. So I'm giving you that perspective because I I often take issue with this sort of historical backfilling of the cause of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's just not true. Uh, Being a student of history, that's a point of contention for me. But looking at this, understand 
the entire land, all of this given to his descendants. And as I've already shared, his descendants include more than just the Jewish people. Uh, There were the Edomites uh, who were descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob, later Israel. Uh, There were many other descendants that Abraham had. And uh, certainly the descendants of Ishmael. So it's important to make that distinction. Okay, so the Lord commanded Abraham and all of his male descendants to be circumcised. And that is brought up in verses 9 through 14 in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. So we read in verse 9, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come, This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or brought Bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is the covenant, and there there is a sign, a fleshly sign, that the descendants of Abraham, again, not just the Jews, the descendants of Abraham are commanded to submit themselves to so that they can be outwardly recognized for being inwardly obedient to God. And that's what circumcision is. It comes up a lot in the scriptures because the Jews of the New Testament times uh, were very adamant about either you were circumcised and you were a Jew or you weren't. So you were either one of God's people or you were not. And they made that distinction, which became a real problem in the early church because the church as we're told in Ephesians, uh, God had broken down every wall between Jew and Gentile. And so at that point, the covenant of circumcision was not for the Gentiles, though still maintained by the Jews. And it was used, this issue was used to divide people within the church. And Paul was on a mission to make it abundantly clear that you didn't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian in order to be saved. But that took time. Decades in the early church before the church was able to iron out those issues, but circumcision was at the center of that issue because of what it represented. This would become an external sign of the everlasting covenant between God and them. And by the way, this is important to know this was no new rite or practice. Many of the surrounding nations practiced circumcision as well. Most people are not aware of this. This was not something just unique to the Jews. Now, for them, for these other tribes, it marked the admission to adult status within the tribe. So those tribes that practiced circumcision at that time, it was a mark of their adulthood. For the Jews, it was different. For Abraham's descendants, it was the outward sign of their relationship with God. So while the practice was practiced by others, circumcision, according to God's word, was practiced by God's people. So, this would be mandatory for all males living within the household of his descendants. This was to separate them from the other peoples around them. 
Infants were to be circumcised once they were eight days old. Now, I was just speaking with a good friend of mine who trains with us at the dojo, and he just had a little grandson, and he is uh, a Jew. And so he was very excited about what they call the bris and the celebration of the, on the eighth day, they have the, the bris or the circumcision, and he was talking to me about it. And um, one of the things I realized, that practice by Orthodox Jews today, it's still, it's still celebrated in much the same way it was in ancient times. <clears throat> and so, this was something that was done on a specific day, and while the peoples of that time didn't realize this, this is true, that the clotting agents have already entered the infant's blood by the eighth day. So, generally, the eighth day is long enough to allow the child to have the clotting agents in its blood. So, from a medical standpoint, the eighth day is the optimal time for this procedure. Now, how did they know that? Well, they didn't, but God knew that. And that's important to see. In fact, another thing is true. The pain receptors in the child have not yet fully developed. So, this is the optimal time because there is less pain, and the blood clots. Perfect time, eighth day. See, when God gives us a command, there's reasons for that command. We may not be fully aware as, as to why eighth day, well, why not the first day or the second day? And, you know, that procedure oftentimes now is done right away with, with young male children. But think about this. The Jews still keep to God's word. And as it turns out, there are medical reasons that we now understand as to why that makes the most sense. <clears throat> Males older than eight days old, well, they weren't so fortunate, but they were to be circumcised immediately. So this is just the way it needed to be. And the Lord confirmed his promises. Through this outward sign on their part, they were testifying to believing in the promises. Now, this is important because Paul talked a lot about this. Circumcision is an outward sign of an inward belief. So when the Greeks became Christians... For them to be circumcised didn't make sense because what really brought about salvation was their inward belief, not the outward sign. You understand? Say amen. So you see, it's very important because if we take that way of thinking into our current culture, many Christians believe that the things we do, the rites we practice, the sacraments we accomplish, somehow bring about salvation. That would be works. But works are dead, as James tells us, without faith. And as long as we understand that good works are good things, but that they can't save you, and that we understand that by faith we're saved, by grace we're saved through faith, that we understand that truth, then whatever good works we do in our lives and through our lives in the flesh bring glory to God. But to think that you and I, that we could do something apart from God and apart from faith to glorify God is ridiculous. And I'm going to go back to how we opened our service. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So there are many people today, maybe even Christians, who are trying to accomplish the works of God and the energy of their flesh. But circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh, and it's designed to make it clear to us that in our flesh dwells no good thing. It's a symbol, like communion is a symbol, it is like baptism is a symbol. It is a symbol to tell us 
Flesh accomplishes flesh. Spirit accomplishes spirit. Now, there's a subtle message here. Maybe not so subtle. Because 14 years earlier, Abram and Sarai, before their names are changed, tried to accomplish the work of God in the energy of their flesh. And now, the child is 13 years old, and... Abram is 99 and and Sarai is 89 and they're being told by God essentially through this symbolism you need to cut away the flesh. You, You need to stop doing things in your own strength and your own power to please God. I think we need to be continually reminded of this truth as Christians because we can always do a better job of trusting God And when we serve God, we need to be continually reminded that that service is in response to his goodness and a consequence of our faith in him. You've heard that, don't put the cart before the horse. Obviously, you put the horse before the cart, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. So, So wait a minute, so what are we saying? That you shouldn't have good works? No, of course you should have good works, but they need to be the work of the spirit, not the work of the flesh. There was a group of people called the Galatians, interesting group of people, because they weren't Greeks, they weren't Romans, they were actually a group of people that we learn a lot about throughout history. They came from the Indo-European area and Asia, made their way into uh, what is today Turkey, in the area of Galatia. Uh, They migrated across Europe into what we call, uh, what we later called Gaul, Again, Galatians, Gaul, right? And then they, that's the area of Spain and France. They made their way to northern Spain. There they're called the Galicians or Gallegos. And then they made their way up into the British Isles where they speak Gaelic. So that prefix cues us into the fact that this group of people made their way all the way from Asia through Europe over centuries into what became the Celts. And they are the Galatian people. Now, many of these people spread out and became different groups. But why am I pointing this out? The Galatians were a group of people, a thriving group of people. They migrated. They liked to be on the move. But here's the thing. As is the case with many overachieving people, when they were confronted with the gospel, they received it gladly, Paul says. They were one of the first people groups that Paul was able to reach. And then very shortly after that, Paul had to write his letter to the Galatians, which I believe is one of his earliest letters, to remind them that after beginning in the spirit, they were now trying to accomplish the work of God in the energy of their flesh. He says, who has bewitched you, Galatians? After beginning in the spirit, are you now trying to accomplish the works of God in the energy of your flesh? So this group of people, great group of people, accomplished a great deal. And for all of our type A overachievers out here, you you need to know that that type of personality is a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing because someone who's capable, someone who is able to accomplish great things, they are in danger of trying to do the works of God in the energy of their flesh. This is particularly true for many pastors and missionaries and servants of God. So, Pastor Tim, what are you saying? I should do nothing? Well, if you are the kind of person that has to be encouraged to do things, maybe not. Maybe you're not that person. 
But if you are the kind of person that's constantly getting involved in things because you see the need, or there's a need to, for someone to volunteer, or there's, there's, there's something that needs to get done, and you're the first one to raise your hand, I want to caution you. Because those are the kind of people that burn out. Those are the kind of people that, unfortunately, like the Galatians, start to think that their relationship with God is based on the things they do. James, he dealt with the Jewish people who felt this way. But see, the Jews had this problem too. Even though they were being told this in the scripture through the account with Abram, they needed to understand God has to breathe life into your works. That is, your works for God must be his work in and through you, not for him. You understand? Say amen. That's important because there's lots of people that feel that the things they do justify them before God. And yet we learned earlier that Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So as a church, our theological underpinnings are very clear. We believe that you are justified by faith. That by grace through faith you are saved, not by the things you do. Okay, that's an important principle. Now let's get into the next thing that happens here, because remember I told you that Abram and Sarai, well, they uh, had decided to take things in their own hands, and they they had this child with a surrogate named Hagar. We saw that last week. And, and, And he's believing, they're believing, everyone's believing this is the son of promise, that the work of their own flesh, the work of their hands, is in fact going to bring about God's blessings. But we know that's not true. Theologically and otherwise, we know it's not true. So here's what we read. We left off in verse 14. We pick it up in 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, kings of peoples will come from her. That's an important uh, promise, isn't it? Let's keep going here. Actually, let's just stop there. That's that's enough to, to chew on. The Lord is confirming his promise of a son who would be Abram's sole heir. Not a work of the flesh, a work of the spirit, a work of God's spirit. A work that's not difficult, a work that's impossible. For you see, the work of the Spirit is impossible. The work of the flesh is difficult. But Jesus told us something. He said that we're to come to him, all of us who are heavy laden, all of us who are burdened. We're to come to him because the work of God is easy. The burden is light. So if your service to God is taxing, burdensome, and you're burned out, I can tell you why. I don't even need to think twice. It shouldn't be that way. Oh, yes, sometimes ministry can be difficult, but if it's not a joy, if it's not easy, then you're probably operating, maybe even doing the work of God in the energy of your flesh. And if you're coming up short, that's why. Oh, we need to get better at making sure that when we're called to do something, we do it in God's strength, in God's power, and not our own. So what we learn here is God changed Sarai's name to testify to the faithfulness of his promise. Just as he had changed Abram to Abraham, he changed Sarai to Sarah. He promised that Sarai would be the mother of many nations. Now, Sarai means my princess. 
which was already true concerning her life. She was, in a sense, a princess because she was married to Abraham, who was an exalted father. But Sarah means princess without the possessive pronoun, and this would be fulfilled in the future as well because she would ultimately, as we know, become the mother of many nations. She would be blessed and miraculously enabled by God to bear Abraham a son. She would mother multiple nations through her many descendants, and she would be the ancestor of kings as well as nations. So this is the promise. Now, does that promise make any sense? No, it's an impossible thing. It's beyond the possibility of what can be accomplished in our own strength. And that is how you will know and recognize a work of God. It is almost always beyond our own capability. So when you're getting involved in ministry and you set your sights on, well, these are our bullet points. This is our mission statement. This is what we want to accomplish. Here's this big book, the phone book of how to plant the church. And if you just follow every step and do everything we say here, you too can be successful. And there are far too many ministries that take that approach. While I don't uh, have disdain for church planting groups, I think most of them are just a lot of nonsense. Because they're the best ideas that have worked somewhere being implemented through others. And I have learned at least this much in the last 40 years. It's a lot easier to do a work of the spirit than it is the work of the flesh. You know, the worst thing is when someone does the work of the flesh and they're marginally successful or even very successful, and then they have to keep that going. Have you ever seen someone play the bagpipes or an accordion? What you don't realize, besides in the case of the bagpipes, the hideous noise that is being uh, foisted upon our ears, what you don't realize is that through that entire musicianship, there is this bellows that must be filled and must at the same time be expelled or expired. You have to continue to pump air into the accordion. That's why they, that's why they go back and forth, right? Or the concertine or any of those instruments, or the bagpipes or the Yulian pipes. There is this air, this bellows, like in an organ, like, you know, the, the, the keyboard organ, a church organ, uh, you have this air that must be pumped into the instrument in order for it to play. That pretty much describes many of the works, quote-unquote, works of God in the church today. There's this desire to make things happen and require a lot of energy in order to accomplish that work. So here's the thing. Are you continuing to pump air into whatever it is you're trying to accomplish in the energy of your flesh? God will breathe life into a work of the Spirit. You will have to continue to sustain a work of the flesh. Now, there's some other things we want to talk about here. Abraham is a name that is very similar to Abram. Sarai is a name that's very similar to Sarah, but there's one difference. There's a sound, phonetically speaking, that's added to their name. So you have Abram, and now we add Abraham. We have Sarai, now we add Sarah. That is the breath of God. Abraham, Sarah. You see, what happens when God's life is breathed into our lives, we can begin to do the things that are impossible, the things that God has called us to accomplish. 
If you keep going in the energy of your flesh, you're going to get tired. You're going to get burned out. And the worst thing that could happen is you become successful on the hamster wheel. Successful pumping air into this work, whatever it is that you think God may have called you to do, but you're doing it incorrectly because you're not relying on God. You're relying on yourself, your own strength. With God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible. So why would we do this? Well, there's pride. There's this fleshly notion that somehow we need to do things for God in order to please God. I think there's ambition. There's people who just want to be successful. They're not really doing it for the right reasons. Uh, Sadly, many times they are successful. They end up with really large churches, and they're not really called to do it. I mean, I'm not going to judge another man's servant, but you look at the fruit of what someone has done with their lives, and you can't measure that fruit on the basis of worldly recognition or worldly accomplishment. You need to measure that on the basis of their obedience to God. Are you obedient to God? Has God called you to pastor your family or a small church or a medium-sized church or a large church? You know, you talk to the pastors who are spirit-led, who are very large churches, and they're not stressed out. How is that possible? Because they know they're not doing the work. I remember something Pastor Chuck said, and I I heard him say this many times on tape, okay, on CD, and, and in person. I heard him say things like, you know, ministry is very difficult until you realize it's impossible, then it's easy. I always remember that. He was struggling and and challenged to trust God and believe God until things got so big and so beyond his ability to control it that he realized this is a work of God, and he let go. So what are you holding on to? What does God need to breathe into in your life? Oh, the name is representative of a person's character. So each of us have things that we're just doing that we need to stop doing, at least stop doing them the way we're doing them. That God may breathe his spirit into our lives and our energy so that what we're accomplishing in our flesh isn't a fleshly work, but a work of God, a cutting away, a circumcision of the flesh. Verse 17. It's a real challenge, isn't it? Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So Abraham's very surprised to find out that he had been mistaken about Ishmael. He he just believed, well, we figured this thing out. Thank you, God, for the promise. Thank you. We worked it out. He naturally assumed that all of God's promises would be fulfilled through Ishmael. And he laughed. He laughed due to the unlikelihood, in fact, the impossibility of him and his wife having a son at their age. He was almost 100 years old and certainly approaching impotence. She was around 90 and certainly past the age of childbearing, and she had also been infertile her entire married life. So, yeah, impossible. But he had believed God's promise without understanding God's method, and we do this so often. Oh, I believe God. He made a promise. I made it happen. That's what we saw last week. God made a promise. I made it happen. 
Oh, God said he wanted to use me as a pastor to plant the church. So I went out, bought that book, that phone book, and I went line by line through how to plant the church. I paid the $99.99, and, 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 I, and I've got everything I need, and we're, we're marching forward, and we've had some success, and isn't God good? Cut away the flesh. Circumcise that work. It doesn't need to be done by you because God desires to do it and meet your needs. Oh, this is everything. This is the most important principle in ministry that I can give you today. It's the most important principle in life. You need to trust in God and relax. You know, one of the things in in martial arts that our senseis are always telling us, just relax. I'm like, relax? What do you mean relax? You're punching me. You're kicking me. How do you mean relax? Everyone, when they start learning kata, is like a robot. You're so tense. You're so nervous. And the truth is, you can't do anything right if you're not relaxed. They also say, stop thinking, just do. (laughs) That's a lot of help. Until you get to a certain point where you realize, ah, I get it now. I got to be relaxed. Oh, yeah, I need to stop thinking so much. I just need to do. And then you start telling other people, and they go like, what do you mean, relax? And here I am this morning, I'm telling you the same thing. You need to relax. You need to chill out. You're making yourself crazy, and you're probably making everybody else around you crazy. And you're accomplishing nothing. (sighs) The breath of God, the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim will change everything. Not just your name. It'll change everything. He will change everything. So he laughs. Laughing's a good thing, and he's not laughing at God, but he's laughing due to the unlikelihood of him and his wife having a son at their age. He obviously thought that he had made God's promises possible by having Ishmael. He assumed that the Lord would place his blessing upon his one and only son at that time. Now, Ishmael was indeed his firstborn son, but he was never the son of promise. A work of the flesh will never accomplish the work of the Spirit. That's what the New Testament teaches us. And he actually used this example to make that point. Paul does. And so the Lord would establish his everlasting covenant with the son of Abraham and Sarah, whose name would be Isaac. Let's look at verses 19 through 22. Then God said, yes, but... Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, which means laughter. (laughs) I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. By the way, it's interesting. Ishmael means God hears. As for God hears, God hears. It's really a pun there, if you will. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers. And I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. So God has appeared to Abraham to make this clear to him. He desires to do a work that is impossible. And indeed, he desires to do an impossible work in your life and in my life as well. 
Isaac means he laughs. It's exactly what Abraham did when he heard this. And maybe you're laughing at the impossibility of God's promises, but Sarah would later laugh as well when she heard this promise. But her laugh was in disbelief when she hears God's promise. We'll get to that next chapter. Isaac would be the son of promise who would inherit all the blessings of God. As I've said, Ishmael means God hears, and God had heard Abraham's prayer for him. He would be very fruitful, have many descendants, be the father of 12 rulers and over a great nation of people. So do you see any curse on the Ishmaelites? Or do you see God's blessing on the Ishmaelites. So you see why I say it's foolish to equate the Ishmaelites with uh, a group of wicked people somehow. It's, it's never been true, and it, and it never was, and it's not true today. I think that's an important principle for Christians to remember. But Isaac, the true son of promise, will be born to Sarah within the next year, he's told. Within the next year. And that's not going to happen in this next chapter, but eventually we get there and we'll see that God is good to fulfill his promise. So what does Abraham do? Now, this is why Abraham is the father of the faith. He's able to realize and recognize that God can do all things. We've learned this already in the book of Romans. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. You see, that truth is the truth of the faith of Abraham, and it's why he was considered or credited as righteous. And so here's what he does, and this is an act of faith. This isn't a work of the flesh. This is a a work of the Spirit based in belief and in faith. When we read in verse 23 of chapter 17, on that very day Abraham took his son Ishmael. Notice his son Ishmael. And all those born in his household are bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told them. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household, or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. That's obedience. The book of Romans talks about it, the obedience that comes by faith. So as I ask the worship team to come up, there is a place for works by faith. They're the works of obedience. The problem with spiritual works that are according to the flesh is they may be doing the right thing the wrong way, and they'll never bring any fruit. Or they may be doing the right thing at the wrong time, and they'll never bring any fruit. Or they may be the wrong thing, and they'll never bring any fruit. But a work of the Spirit, accomplished in the life of the person who has surrendered their life to God, cut away the flesh, and based their relationship on God's blessings and faith in his promises, that person operates in the Spirit of God. The breath of God has been breathed into their life, and Everything changes when the breath of God has been breathed into your life. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, it is true that with God, all things are possible. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this encouragement to trust in you. Oh, how we need to be reminded of your goodness and your power, your grace and your mercy. And how we need to remember that we can accomplish nothing apart from you. 
Lord, I pray for all those today who are spiritually stressed, who have allowed themselves to operate in the energy of the flesh. And for those who maybe have been seeking a relationship with God for decades according to their actions and their works. Free them this morning, Lord. Free them from this mistake, this grave error, that they may know that by by faith, by grace, by faith, we've been made right before you. That as we put our faith in you, and as we give our hearts to you and believe by faith that you are the Lord and Savior who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, that as we put our trust in the cross and the empty tomb, we can know that we know that we know that we're not only saved, but as we open our hearts to the power of your Spirit and you breathe life into us that we can do all things because you give us strength. Lord God, help us to be good examples like Abraham and Sarah, of trusting you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.